there's this quote that I really like where it basically says, when performance is measured, performance improves. When performance is measured and reported, the rate of improvement accelerates. Welcome to Unlimited Partners, a podcast on partnership. I'm your host, Thomas McGannon. I'm an investor on a journey to understand what makes great partnerships. This podcast is my way of recording that process and sharing it. Today's conversation is with Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary, a multi-stage investment firm that focuses on identifying and supporting talented individuals during the earliest stages of their careers. Think Y Combinator just one step earlier. Six years into its journey, Contrary is establishing itself as one of the leading full-spectrum venture-scale investors. Kyle joined Contrary to lead their breakout fund, which invests in proven companies that are looking to accelerate their growth. I really enjoyed talking with Kyle about the differences between seed stage and growth investing. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had here at Unlimited Partners, so we let this one run a little bit longer. I hope you all don't mind. As always, please send any comments or suggestions. We love hearing from you. My email is thomas at up-pod.com. And before we hand it off, I just want to extend a special thank you and congratulations to our sponsor, Tegas. Not only did co-founder Mike Elnick broker the connection for this episode, but Tegas also recently completed a really exciting acquisition of a company called Canalyst, which is a technology research platform that provides investors with accurate, real-time financial models and key performance indicators for over 4,000 companies. I think this is a huge step forward for Tegas as it establishes itself as the generational company for investment research in the digital age. Finally, I'm going to be staying with Mike and his wife when I visit New York next month, so I'm hoping this extra plug earns me a stocked refrigerator when I get there. Unlimited Partners is brought to you by Tegas. It's fair to say that I built my technology investing career on the Tegas platform. Since joining as a beta customer back in 2017, I've personally conducted hundreds of primary expert interviews, and I've read or listened to more than 10 times that many using their searchable on-demand transcript database. I simply couldn't imagine making an investment or critical business decision without consulting the knowledge that's captured in their platform. So whether you're a professional investor, corporate development executive, or just someone who's looking for expert insights, give Tegas a try by visiting tegas.com. Let's talk about my marketplace builder. It, it really is the future of the world right now. Exactly how Shopify did it with the e-commerce world where people needed to go through and sell their stuff online. We're doing that with marketplace spots. There's no limits to how you want to grow your marketplace and how do you want to do it or what your marketplace idea is. So the website is mymarketplacebuilder.com. If you have a marketplace idea, then please go check them out. Unlimited Partners is not investing advice. The host and members of Unlimited Partners may have a position in the securities discussed. Please do your own research. And now, my conversation with Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. Yeah, thinking a lot about about the concept of family, our kids ask a bunch, is this person family, is that person family? we've, you know, post COVID we've, we've kind of set up our lives to, 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 to travel a fair amount, which, which, which is amazing. It's a dream come true, but it also means that we don't have the same kind of regular cadence, um, in a, in a, in a spot. Um, and, and so, so the family of choice that we build, um, 
it ends up playing like a, a pretty significant significant role so yeah that's pretty powerful especially when like I mean, we have thought about this a lot where we have been in the, we were in the Bay Area for the last six years and basically had no family. Like we had one aunt who was, you know, an hour away or so, but like no real family, but we had to be there for work. And so you have to like form this community around yourself. And as soon as we could, like country is remote now and stuff. And so as soon as we could, that's why we moved back to Utah and it's night and day, like the ability to be able to like have multiple people, multiple family, both in the like actual family and like friends that we know so well that they're basically family nearby. Like we got sort of robbed of that during COVID. So I feel you. I think it leads in pretty well to to the opening question that I'd sent over. Um, I love uh, your best investment. Actually, what is what is the what is the title of the the, the blog post? Um, uh, the most important. Yeah, I investment? think you're the only investment that matters. You wrote a blog called "You're the Only Investment That Matters," and in it, you proposed this notion of an investment committee um, and how you consider yourself as an investment. The time that you spend, where you live, the people that you associate with, like what makes up. Those minutes, I think about the Emily Dickinson poem, Forever is Composed of Nows. And so how you build those nows, like that's the portfolio that you have in your life. I would love to hear what has your journey to considering like what the most important investment decision you make, your allocation of time is and 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 how you've let that flow through your role as a father, a husband, and somebody who's building a very successful career. Yeah. Um, this is definitely where it all started for me. Like I have a lot of people that I know who get into investing of, you know, very, I mean, venture, hedge funds, whatever, all kinds of investing. And they, you know, maybe they've done something else for a few years. They try investing for a few years. They want to go do something else. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there will be times in my life when I'm drawn to different things, different hobbies, whatever, but I, it, it just never occurred to me the same way that I didn't want to be uh, an investor uh, for the rest of my career. And I think it came from not because I not only because I love the job of being a venture capitalist, like I love working with founders and looking at startups and thinking about how things get built. I, I do love that job. But even more than that, I love the like the art of investing, the, the cart, the sort of the spirit of it. And at the core idea is it is about taking finite resources and allocating them to maximize a particular outcome. And so in investing, that's obviously we're taking cash, we're trying to build good businesses, but time and even attention, like the attention span that you have, how much of it you allocate to your phone versus your kids versus your hobbies versus your golf buddies, whatever, all of the resources in life are finite and time is one of the most finite ones because you, you cannot get it back. Like even with cash, like there's ways to recoup your losses. When you lose time, you've lost time and that's it. And I wrote another article uh, a couple weeks ago called The Natural Selection of Time. And it's a concept that I've thought a lot about. But it's basically this idea that like what you give oxygen to is the thing that's going to survive. And so if you have hobbies or habits or things like that, that you're like, man, I wish I didn't do that or I shouldn't spend as much time on it. As long as you keep giving oxygen to it, as long as you keep allocating, you know, part of your portfolio to this idea um, or to this hobby, it's going to survive. And so when I think about how do I, you know, how, how do you most effectively allocate the resources that you have? 
like that's a real art. And I feel like being an investor and being around investing and thinking about the philosophy of investing, it forces me to evaluate how I'm allocating all of my resources. And, it, and in terms of like, you asked this one question of like, how do you think about that allocation? How do you improve it? There's this quote that I really like where it basically says, when performance is measured, performance improves. When performance is measured and reported, the rate of improvement accelerates. And I love that idea because I think that the most effective way that you can be a good investor, a good allocator of resources, of time, money, whatever, is if you build a system to measure and report on how did that go? Because we're so good at tricking ourselves into thinking that we're really effective allocators and we're really attentive parents and, and spouses and whatever. Um, but when you start to measure and report what you've actually done with your allocated resources, that's when you have to sit back and be like, well, crap. Like when I look at my, you know, the amount of time I've spent on my phone or the I've added up the number of hours I've spent with my kids or whatever, and, and you find yourself wanting, that's when you start to actually change your performance. Do you have any systems for measuring and reporting that, that you actually implement. My challenge is, and I've been asked about this in the past, like what's my note-taking process? What's, what is my measuring stick for ensuring that I'm making progress in the areas that I care about? To be honest, Kyle, I don't have one. And it's, it's why this podcast project has kind of been helpful because it um, forces me, it allows me to go back and listen to conversations that I've had. And it, there's some really interesting reflection that you can find, the themes that come up uh, consistently. I like doing the podcast. I like talking to people. So it's something that I think I can continue doing. I don't like doing a lot of, I don't know, measurement. Uh, I don't like, I don't like a lot of structured work. And so I struggle a lot here. What are, what are some of the systems that you've used? It's a good question. I think that, um, so this is kind of an, a, a weirder uh, sort of dive than I usually take, but there's a scripture in the Bible um, where Jesus is talking to the apostles and he says, you know, you have the power that whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And there's this other scripture that I, that I like, that I live by. It's this idea that whatsoever is recorded on earth shall be recorded in heaven. And the idea of like, it's kind of like time is a, is a running stream, right? If you walk through a, a stream, you'll never pass through the same water twice even if it feels the same, even if you feel like you're in the same place, the water's rushing by, you're only going to pass through it once. And so for me, I mean, I, I am probably the opposite of you on that spectrum of I'm a massive, I'm a massive note-taking nerd. Like anybody who knows me knows that I have ridiculously intense systems for keeping track of the things that I do. And so for me, it is, I mean, every, I use, uh, an app called Rome Research, um, that it's just built the way my brain is built. And so it helps me to keep track and connect ideas and stuff. And a lot of times I'm not always perfectly consistent at it, but a lot of times I literally, there's a command in my note-taking app where I can just insert the uh, timestamp of what time it is. And I'll say, Hey, I'm starting a new activity. I'm, you know, I was clearing my inbox and now I'm reading this memo or whatever. And I'll timestamp what I'm doing and jot down a quick note of what I'm doing. So I literally keep track of like, you know, hour to hour what I'm doing each day. I'm not perfect at it, but I think if I abstract that to the principle, like I don't think everybody's going to be as big of a note-taking nerd as I am, but I think that it matters less that you follow a particular system and more that you have a system. So I think that you having the podcast project is a perfect example of that, right? It's like the, you really enjoy these conversations with people. And in, and in all the chats that we've had, that comes across very clearly that 
you really you really thrive in having these these types of conversations and and sharing with people. I think that that could also be a journal that you just keep, you know, each night. Um, I think that even the way that people take so many pictures, I think is, is, can be a really powerful way. My wife, her, one of her favorite things is every, you know, at the end of every year, she, she puts together a picture book, like we use Google photos and Google photos has a picture book printing service. So you can literally just design a photo book out right out of your photos from your phone and then just click a button and it ships you a book. And so we have a book for every year we've been married and just creating that picture book, like that record of what did we do this year? What did we accomplish? How much did we love each other? How many memories did we make? Like that kind of stuff. Having a system to look back on that, I think is the most powerful thing. It doesn't really matter what your system is as long as you have something. I think that's great. I have found that some of the best progress that I've been able to make is a consequence of following what about uh it's kind of allowing it's it's kind of a, this is a conversation about serendipity i suppose it's it's whatever what, finding the thing that really resonates um with you that 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 inspires some kind of an emotion or or uh awareness and then really steeping in it taking that as far as you can um i remember kind of talk when you share that your wife builds these um these 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 photo books and and that's a way of of measuring your life i i remember one time i was on a jog and i i had this thought of what if what if i was 35 at the time what if 25 year old me met 35 year old me and i i started kind of walking through what my life looked like what my relationships were like financially where was i 10 years ago and then where am i today and it, it, it like I started crying is what, is what happened. And, um, and, and, and that was a lesson for me to take the cues when my mind is, is wandering to find thoughts that for me can structure progress in a way that helps me understand where I was, where I am now. And then importantly, where I need to go from here. I think what I realized in that moment was, holy cow, the joy that I've experienced over the last 10 years is a function of having made progress. And if I want to have this same fulfilling state of being, if I want to have a similarly joyful experience in the future, I'm going to have to embrace change. And I didn't realize that prior to having that thought, just how explicit that I needed to get with embracing change, with, with questioning scripts that I had written about my life. And, um, that's a, I, uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing with me kind of what it is that you, uh, work on here because I, it's, it struck me that you're, you're very thoughtful in the way that you're building your life. Um, I think that that makes for great investing, both on a professional and frankly, more important, a time allocation, you know, who you are in, in those, who you think that you are in those final min minutes of your life. Um, that, that really, <laughs> like that's, that's the ultimate liquidity event or that's the ultimate like investment realization that I'm, that I'm, that I'm trying to, to, to keep in mind. Um, Kyle, one of the topics that I wanted to um, walk through with you is your career, um, you've worked at some of the highest regarded funds out there, uh, TCV, KOTU, Index, Contrary. It's a real murderer's row. So congratulations. 
you got here, um, I think every, and we, this is one thing that's come up a number of times in conversations is, is just how um, unique and how non-consensus many individuals stories are. I love yours having, having come from a videography uh, background. Could you just share that transition that you were able to architect from the business that you had? I think that that was in college to then the venture capital. And now I think I really want to get specifically into what it means to be a, a growth investor. But I think that your story, when you look at where you are right now, I hope that you probably, I, I hope that you have a similar feeling of, holy cow, I made that much progress in what amount of time? I think that it's a, it's just something I'd like to, to, to hear you kind of share. Well, it's super kind of you to say. Um, it is funny to think back to, you know, to your point, you know, if I'd met my previous self, I think about if I had met myself in high school, I don't know. I don't know if I would be uh, disciplined. There's a lot of things about my life that I think are very exciting. I think that I had a very different vision for my life. So when I was in high school, I was obsessed with, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino and, and Christopher Nolan. And I, I, all I wanted to do was be a filmmaker. And so when I went to college, I was, I majored, you know, I, I declared my major as film. I uh, was making wedding videos and music videos and commercials to pay for college. I was I was so drenched in this creative endeavor, and eventually it just got to the point. It was, it was very just a pragmatic discovery. Um, I just I was pretty good at getting jobs. Like I would identify all the time different ideas and brain, brainstorm different ways with with people how I might make a video for them. And it got to the point where I had too many clients. And so I had met a bunch of other folks who were doing, you know, I'd, I'd borrow, you know, lenses and stuff from them and stuff. So I'd gotten to know them and I'd go to them and say, hey, I've got this job. I can't do it. I'd love to do it, but I can't do it. I worked really hard to convince them to let me do it. You know, do you want to take it? And do you mind, can I take, you know, 3% of what you make just for getting you the job? And then you can take the rest. And eventually I realized I was actually not that good of a videographer. Like I wasn't as much as passionate as I was and much as I love, I, and still to this day, I'm a huge movie buff and love filmmaking. I was just never that good at what I did, but what I was good at was getting clients. And so over time, it just got to the point where I wasn't making any of my own videos because I was going out and getting so many clients for other people. And I would have people say, Hey, by the way, you know, making this video, this is great. We're also trying to make a logo. Do you make logos? And I'd say, no, but I can find someone. And so I expanded to graphic designers and then photographers and it sort of got to the point where it was too much to keep track of in my head and in my crappy little spreadsheet. And so I built a, a very crappy little website that was basically, I was the back end effectively on the website, but it was just an easy way to visualize all my clients and all my creatives. And I sort of became this one man marketplace and grew that to, you know, a decent sized company. It was never massive. And I don't even know that I knew to call what I was doing a startup. It was just a, pro I remember talking to my wife, even when we were dating, just calling it a project. Like it was just a project that I was working on, even though I was, you know, I was generating pretty significant amount of, of money for me at that time. Um, I still just always called it a project. And it got to the point where it got so big that I felt like, and I look back on this and I think that I, you know, I could have done myself more, uh, or I did myself a disservice by thinking this, but at the time I just felt like it had grown past me. And so I started looking to ways to, to sell it. And, you know, it was a small outcome, but it was, it was, you know, meaningful for me. Um, but at the same time I realized, well, crap, now what do I do with my time? You know? And I started talking to a friend and I said, I have no idea what I want to do. He said, what did you like about what you were doing? 
And I said, what I loved most was I had all of these super passionate creatives and I was a resource for them. Like they would come, I mean, not only for just getting jobs, which is what I primarily did, but uh, questions about bookkeeping, questions about marketing, building their own websites, whatever. They would come to me and I wouldn't always know the answer, but I would go break down walls for them. And I loved that. And my friend, um, who I'm still in touch with and good friends with today, he said, well, that's sort of what venture capitalists do. And I said, I don't know what those words mean together. I have never heard those two words strung together in a sentence. Uh, but very quickly, I was just a, like an info session or something. It basically said, want to be a venture capitalist? Come to this meeting. And so it was a way to get to know a venture firm in Utah. Um, I worked with them, and I, I credit them with sort of being the godfathers of my career. I mean, they taught me the ins and outs of venture. And I got my first exposure working for them for a year or so. But I pretty quickly realized, you know, I, as much as I enjoyed uh, this idea of breaking down walls, early stage, kind of seed stage investing, I wanted to, to tackle businesses that had a little bit more meat on the bones. Like I felt like the thing that I'd really enjoyed running my own business was getting into the weeds and solving a bunch of operational problems. And there's just not as many operational problems at the very earliest stages of a company. And so I started looking for, okay, well, what does the other end of the spectrum look like? Very, very late stage developed companies. And so that's how I got introduced to the folks at TCV and really jumped to the other end of the spectrum where I was looking at mostly pre-IPO companies and even in some cases, majority buyouts of different companies and things. So got exposed to a lot of different types of investing. From there, the thing that I was really focused on is, well, I, I, you know, these companies are so developed that I was more far removed from the founders than I wanted to be. And so as I started looking at other firms, I, I got connected to the folks at Co2. And in talking to them, what I really appreciated was that they were doing all shapes and sizes of investing, everywhere from early stage to growth to pre-IPO and, and in, obviously into the public markets because they're a big hedge fund. And so I loved that, that variety and I loved seeing lots of different you know, types of companies and, and thought I would stay at Co2 for a lot longer than I did. But the folks at Index reached out to me to, to help them think about their own growth investing, right? They're, they're phenomenal venture investors. They'd raised many, 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 several growth funds. And so I joined to help them think through the growth strategy and, and love the people there, love the experience there. I think that after spending a few years at Index, the, the itch that started to, to sort of, you know, pervade in my mind was I had been at three phenomenal firms over the course of about six years. And each of those firms were great but they were very well-established engines, right? They're sort of going to they're gonna hum on with or without me. And what I missed about running my company was that it really, I mean, I, my fingerprints were all over it, right? I was helping to dictate everything. And not even helping, I was dictating what things, you know, what happened. And so as I started to think about, man, I really missed that. Does that mean I should start another company? What should I do? But I really love being an investor for some of the things we talked about previously, this idea of digging into the philosophy of investing. I just loved it. And so I thought, well, what would like a startup venture fund kind of look like a venture fund that's just been around for, you know, not the 20 plus years of the firms that I was at, but you know, maybe five or six, right? I've got three kids. I don't, I don't need to bend over backwards to take huge amounts of risk, but I want to be somewhere where it's early enough in its life that I can still put my fingerprints on it and, and help to shape it. And then when I went out looking for what are the firms I was most excited about, you know, contrary was at the top of the list. So I was previously a, a hedge fund manager. And when I, um, one of the one of the realizations that I had when I decided to leave was that um, you know I, I, my my practice was effectively cl clicking a button. Um, I could buy a stock, I could make an investment in the same way that anybody else could. The level of differentiation, the opportunity to build relationship, and then have those actions lead to 
productive outcomes. Like it just, it really isn't there. Um, and so when I, when I left and, and got into family office work and private investing, I really went skewed like way to the other side. So seed stage, like very early, zero data, most times zero product. And there are pieces of that environment that I like. I like being able to invest in a way where like job one is just keep the business from from um, going out of business, which I think gives it a lot of opportunity for bringing encouragement and enthusiasm and, and like basically like if this is going to fail, it's going to fail for any reason other than giving up. Like we do not give up here. You just keep rowing and you solve problems. I like that, but the sophistication, the traction, the insights that you can derive from data and then build like company logic on top of, I'm, I'm, I miss that. How do you think about that? So I, what I'm saying is I like to feel like I'm adding value. I like to feel like I'm doing something that only I can do. Um, and, and that, that, that brings me satisfaction. Like that makes me think I'm living a life, um, uh, you know, worth, worth, worth having. How do you think about that for companies that are to a certain extent kind of already who they are, like what insights or questions and then, and, or factors about that business are you looking for? And then when it comes to this concept of being helpful, how do you think about applying yourself to something that's already well in motion? I think about this a lot and in, in part because every firm I have been at does invest in different stages, right? Even TCV when it was all very late stage, but it was public and it was private. At Code 2, it was lots of different stages. At Index, it was lots of different stages. So in my career, I've never been a stage, other than, I guess, the year I spent at a seed fund in, in Utah, I've never been a stage-specific investor. I've always had to think about companies at different phases of their life. Um, and when I think about the way that that sort of evolves, I've described this before where at the very earliest stages, and, and at Contrary, we think about this very much where we have sort of two sides of the house. One side of the house is we're leading pre-seed, seed, and even some series A investments. And it's very, at that stage, it's very founder centric. To your point, it's very focused on like the the individual and, and how highly we think of them and how creative we think they are and their capability to be able to tackle a problem. It's super founder centric, even to the point of like, if we don't love the idea that they're working on, but we're super passionate about them, we have confidence that they can probably figure out, you know, hey, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't show the right signs, they'll figure it out and they'll pivot or whatever, right? So we're very individual-centric. When you get to that stage that you're describing, which is like a company has become some of what it's going to be, I think of it as you sort of loaded up the boat, right? So you've got, this is not something that can be easily moved left or right. This is something where you've got 30, 40, 50 plus employees. You probably have customers who are live, even if the product is early. Those customers are becoming somewhat dependent on that product. So you're very much, that's a much harder beast to pivot. Um, you know, it's a much more loaded chip. And so when I think about myself in that phase, I think that the transition goes, it's, it's certainly not that founder risk goes away at the later stages. But to some extent, it becomes distributed across multiple different mechanisms. And that's what I really like, is, is getting into the weeds on a specific mechanism and figuring it out. When, when you're at the point where the founder is doing everything, 
um, it's, it's much more difficult where it's really just like, you have to support that person as a human being. You have to support that person as an individual. And that's what most seed investors do is they support those people. They're a counselor, they're an advisor to that person. What I really enjoy and the reason that I jumped from seed stage to very late stage with TCV is because I wanted to learn what good looks like in each of those various organizations. And so within sales, within marketing, within product, within engineering, all of these areas, I wanted to get in and understand what that looks like. And then for that company, when you think about value add, the biggest value add that you can offer to that company is actually a collection of much what feels like much smaller things, right? So from a sales perspective, anything from, hey, we're trying to think through our compensation structures. How, what's the best way to incentivize? Here's our business model. How do we incentivize the best behaviors? And if I can get in and find, you know what? Hey, your model is very similar to this company I've worked with before. Let me introduce you to the CRO that I've worked with. That's huge for that thing. That might not be game changing for the company where you look back and you think, oh man, the entire history of this company lived or died based on our ability to to effectively compensate, but maybe, right, maybe in that situation, but it's certainly most meaningful for that, that sort of organization within the company. And it's the same thing across all these different organizations. And it's one of the things, so I, I'm a big fan of the show, The West Wing. Um, And there's a, there's a scene where the president is talking to his deputy chief of staff and the deputy chief of staff is super frustrated because he's failed to do something, to accomplish something the president was really, was really pushing for. And he's frustrated and he's mad at everyone. And the president takes him aside and he says, do you know what the difference between you and me is? Uh, the president says, I want to be the guy. You want to be the guy that the guy counts on. And that idea of there are people who want to be the person sitting in the seat, making the decisions, driving those, those efforts forward. And that's amazing. And I, I was that when I ran my company. What I actually love most is being that person that the guy or the gal in the seat can count on, can rely on, that I'm going to break down walls for them. It doesn't mean that I profess to be an expert in every single possible area that they might run into. And I think any investor that says that they are is is probably lying or naive or both. Uh, I think that the reality is that, you know, I, I talk a lot about this concept of a decentralized brain. It's just a network, right? The, the, the reality is the more relationships you build with people who are world class at particular areas, the better the, a growth investor you are. The more effectively you're able to both not just pattern match in terms of like, oh, my gut tells me that this is the way to do things. But it's really like, all right, well, if I unpack the underlying components of your business, those feel comparable to this model that I've seen before or this person who's run this kind of thing before or whatever. Like, I think that becomes really powerful. And how that translates into a diligence perspective is I'm thinking really deeply about what is the economic engine that you're building across the board? How do all of these departments feed into this economic engine? And how do we make sure that they're all humming? So that's what I think a lot about in terms of the, the companies that I work with. That is a great synopsis. Um, having the mental model uh, informed by what the best companies have done, being able to go beneath the layer one and identify go-to-market compensation product um, approaches that have been really successful, being able to understand when those um 
when those comparables are are worth being like invoked and then when you can actually build relationship around that facilitating that liquidity across companies I, like that makes that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me um one of the topics that you've written about and, and you guys uh talk a lot about there at contrary um revolves around talent. So you guys have, have quoted uh, Fred Wilson talking about how talent is the only thing that matters. And um, you, you've, you've, you guys have this, this, uh, this concept of, of talent vortexes. Could you talk about what a talent vortex is? And um, yeah, I think that's the question. Could you talk about what a talent vortex is and why they matter? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. So we talk a lot at Contrary about being a people-centric firm, investment firm, um, and the way that we shape our thinking and, and the types of companies that we look at. And that translates both to individuals as well as organizations. So again, I mentioned we've got these two sides of the house. One is leading rounds into very early stage companies, and one is participating in rounds in later stage companies. And so I focus on that later stage effort. The way that we think about talent and, and what leads to a talent vortex it's this idea that, so number one, and one of the best uh, you know, stories or outlines of this is uh, a book, The Founders. It's all about the founding of PayPal and the kinds of people that were there. And um, Frederick Gieschen is this guy on, uh, on Twitter who, who interviewed the author. Frederick's a friend. Uh, he's great. I love yeah. Frederick. Uh, this is a great interview that you're about to yeah, reference. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, the interview is phenomenal. And they talk about like, all these stories of the early culture of PayPal and the biggest thing was that there was just this robust, talented, intellectual rigor that existed in this company. And the reason that you've had the PayPal mafia is, is largely, honestly, like not to say that PayPal was a, you know, a bad outcome or a bad company. PayPal was a great company, but it wasn't that the reason that they went on to so many people came out of PayPal to become just powerhouses in, in, the, in the tech world broadly is because of that culture that got built up, that talent vortex that got built up. And so when I, when I use the word talent vortex, it starts with these sort of sparks or nodes uh, of individuals. At contrary, the way that we think about these individuals often drives the, the early stage investments that we make as well. So we want to see people that have demonstrated slope in their own career, right? It's people that are hungry and passionate, but it's also things like, you know, if they've had a job before, it's people who've gotten promoted quickly because they're they're eating up more responsibility, they're tackling more responsibility, and that's huge. As well as things like we look often for people who have who have built things in other ways, right? If they've built impressive things or um, you know sort of become world class at something they do, there's sort of some demonstrated slope in their character. And then the second thing is just the the size of the aspiration. Like again, I think that you know this has sort of become. Uh, a little bit cliche to say, hey, everybody wants to go build a multi-billion dollar business. But it's the people who genuinely think, I want to spend the next 40 years building this thing. Like I love, um, I think the folks who originally introduced us, uh, Mike and Tom at, um, at Tegas, um, I love those guys because that's what they talk about. Like they talk about they're building Tegas because it's the thing that they want to be building for decades and decades. And I love that that sort of dripping aspiration. So when we look at individuals who can kick off talent vortexes, that's a big piece of it, is those people who have done really exceptionally what they do. Um, and then those people, so that, and then we make a seed investment and, and things like that. We work really closely with those folks. Then over time, in our perspective, the way that a company becomes really successful is that that person is not only sort of talented in the dark, 
but they're talented in public, right? They're, they're able to demonstrate their own capability to attract really high quality talent and keep the bar really high where they're willing to be shorthanded if it means, you know, waiting to find a really exceptional person. And so in my work, when I look at later stage companies or when we think about doubling down on our existing portfolio, it's a question of has that, um, you know, really exceptional individual talent started to extend itself into creating a vortex of talent that just, it's just, you're so good at what you do that you attract really talented people because they want to come and work with you and, and also be really hungry and driven and, and, and drive towards that really big aspiration that you have. And so we focus really heavily on, is this company building a talent vortex? Another way that we think about that is that we are more focused on identifying really exceptional people, even before we're focused on identifying exceptional companies. So obviously at the growth stage, especially, you, you, know, you have to do diligence. You have to ask the questions of, does this economic engine work? But first and foremost, we're asking, is, are these exceptional people? And we're constantly thinking about how do we hone that definition of what exceptional people look like? But that's one of the, that's the, that is the way that you build a talent vortex is by surrounding exceptional people with exceptional people. Would you mind telling me a little bit about Contrary? When I looked through your pitch deck, um, I was just blown away by the way that you guys think about building the, the talent and relationship funnel. I'd love to hear something of the founding story of Contrary, your journey to joining, and what it means to be a more people-centric VC fund. Because I, I think that you guys actually do some things, whether it's with the money that you invest in in Prism, your system for identifying talent. I just think that spending some time on the history and business model of Contrary would be really awesome. Definitely. And huge credit where credit is due. So one of the reasons why I was so excited to work with Eric and that I finally found a role that made sense for me and my background to work with him is because I think of him as one of the most just exceptionally bootstrapped people that I know. Like he, he's really, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no background, family money, anything that sort of just set him up in a, in a sort of almost like an unfair level of success. Everything he has built, he has built through just, you know, raw grit and, and, and passion and things like that. So huge credit to Eric for building what he's built. And the, the way that the contrary story started. So early in Eric's career, he worked at a YC company and that was acquired by Lyft and he, he, you know, through college and through this experience, he saw all of these exceptional people around him, right? We've all been in that situation where we think, man, these are, when I think about all the people I've come across, here's the, you know, five or six or 10 or whatever exceptional people that I just, I would love to stay close to and, and surround myself with. And when he thought about the evolution of venture, he caught on to what I think is becoming progressively a more accepted uh, trend now. But, you know, six years ago, when he started Contrary, it was much, uh, it was much more of a, sort of raw, a raw take. So basically the evolution that he saw was venture has evolved from the sort of, you know, V1, if you will, uh, being very company centric transactions. And that's the Sequoias and Kleiners. They find a good company, they, they give them money. And largely what they do for you is the money and maybe the board member, but it, it kind of comes with the money. And the second phase of this that we've seen and that has been wildly successful is company-centric programs. So Y Combinator built their offering around a very specific program. It's still fairly company-centric. Like there is some, to some extent, like it's a very early company, 
but it's still very much about like, hey, when you pitch, you're not pitching like, hey, here's who I am as a person. You're pitching, here's my company, here's my idea. And they bring you into this program. But at most, the program has a beginning and an end, right? Is it Even though you have some loose affiliation longer term with YC, it's still you were in the XYZ cohort, right? It started at this point, it ended at this point, and that's a happy memory and they're helpful and you move on. The way that Contrary sees V3 playing out is around people-centric communities. And so for Contrary, the core idea is we identify the sharpest people as early as possible and we support them relentlessly throughout their career, even before they start a company. And so in the early, early days of Contrary, what better way to identify really sharp people than going to, you know, 40 plus universities across the country and identifying the two or three sharpest, most entrepreneurial people. And there's a few, you know, university-centric programs out there. I'd say that the core way that Contrary has differentiated itself is that it's never been focused on people who wanted to be, you know, they wanted this experience because it'd be good on their resume to go get an investment banking job or whatever. There's certainly people who come into Contrary and go out and they do banking, they do consulting, they do venture, whatever. But the big focus in building that early community was on future builders, people who wanted to be founders down the road. That, that's what they focused on. And that has compounded for years and years and years, finding the sharpest people and they become venture partners. So they work with us on campus to source and identify the most interesting companies that have some kind of connectivity to their network or their university. And that's been a phenomenal source of, uh, of, of company introductions for us. But even more than that, it's been great to have the introductions, but even more than that, we've gotten to get really close to what is now a community of about 400 super talented folks, and we grow with them in their career. So when they went to get their first job, we wanted to be a resource to them to help them think about it. And a good example of that even today, so just recently we announced that we hired a new head of talent, super talented guy. He's been, he was at OnDeck and spent years and years just helping people think about their career and their path and, and to help companies hire and things like that. But what's unique about him is that, you know, at most venture firms, the talent team would sort of be mostly like a plug and play recruiter for the portfolio companies. Again, because the old model is very company centric, we're still supporting our companies with our talent arm very much so. But Anthony, um, who's, who's our new head of talent, his big focus is first on supporting the members of the community that we have. We stay close to them. We want to help them think about what jobs they want to get. We want to help them connect to the right people. Um, and even right now, we're actually hiring for a coaching lead whose primary focus will be on furthering the careers and development of the folks in our community. Um, so if you know anybody who's, who loves helping uh, young, ambitious future founders, you know, send them my way because that and that plays right into the ethos of Contrary is that we're first and foremost focused on building and supporting relationships with these super talented individuals in whatever way that that sort of evolves into. And right now, the way that that has kind of translated into our investing activities, number one, if people in our community start a company, awesome. We want to be their first check. We want to be super supportive. We want to be helpful. If some of those people want to go explore uh, an idea, Great. We have grant programs. We have um, what we call contrary sabbatical, where people can take a year off and get some funding to be able to play around with an idea. If it doesn't work out, that's okay. They go back to their job or whatever. Awesome. There's another big chunk of the community that I spend a lot of time with, which are folks who maybe they're not ready to start a company yet. They want to start a company eventually, but right now they're focused on finding roles at exceptional 
um, growth companies, you know, later stage companies and, and sort of series B plus. And so that evolves into a lot of the work that I do, uh, you know, finding the best later stage companies to invest in is it can either be push or pull. So our community might go work for a stellar company and that pulls us towards that company. And we say, hey, if we've got a couple of people working at this company, we should really, you know, spend time with them and get to know them and potentially invest and, and help grow that team. Or there's a push motion where I might go to a company and I might say, hey, I think you're an exceptional company and we have some stellar people in our community and I'd love to help you hire from that community. And so you can kind of see this core thread throughout everything that Contrary does is we're laser focused on identifying the sharpest people and then building the products and features into our community that would most support them. That's fantastic. I um, After this conversation, I, I'll follow up with you to see how I might be able to get involved in some of this, because I think your comments around, you know, you, you want to find the slope um, and where you can, like you want to have an influence on the slope. Like you want to be supportive. You want to build that longitudinal relationship so that you can say like, I know this person's deep driving desires. I know their capabilities. And when I invest with them, like I, I've, I've de-risked a lot of what can go wrong just by way of having, having been there. So surrounding yourself with really high quality people, um, and building that through your process, um, and kind of cradle to, to IPO, like it's, it's a really differentiated business model. Um, you, you describing that as, as really, as really helpful. Um, when it comes to maybe an example for, how you've identified someone early in their uh, careers, maybe pre-career, and then following their trajectory through to an investment and making an impact into the companies that you guys work with. Does any company stand out as as typifying how this works in, in reality? Yeah. So we talk about a lot of, there's a lot of different paths. There's several companies that we have known the the founder for years, right? They worked with us as a venture partner. We got to know them that way. Maybe they went to get their first job. We helped them think about that job. And then when they went to start a company, we were able to lead their seed round. And in many instances, so one example that is sort of near and dear to my heart because I was involved in the story very early on. Um, so there's a good friend of mine, John Colliker, who he and I went to BYU together and when Eric originally reached out to me and wanted to meet, you know, John's a few years behind me in school. And so when I was running my company, he reached out to me to, to connect. Eric reached out to me to connect with people in the Utah ecosystem who could be venture partners. So John was still in school. So I introduced Eric to John. And so John became a venture partner at BYU for a few years and then went on to work at LinkedIn for a couple of years and, and all the time. Eric and Contrary stayed super close to John. He was an advisor to other folks. He a super helpful member of the community, really engaged. And so went to LinkedIn, went to GSB. He'd always wanted to go to business school. And while he was working to get into business school, he he sort of leveraged some resources in both getting into a um, sort of two and two program where he got deferred uh, um, enrollment or admission to to GSB at Stanford. Um, but he also started helping other people who, who were thinking about business school. And he, he saw this sort of coaching element evolve in, hey, this, this is a really valuable thing to help people. Yeah, with business school, but also with, lo- also with lots of other things that you could help uh, sort of you know, bring people along in their careers. And so John started Leland um, you know, while he was at GSB and basically didn't even, you know, for his initial round of funding, he didn't even, you know, this is a, 
super talented, you know, LinkedIn, GSB, really stellar guy, had connections, lots of other funds, came right to Eric and right to Contrary to lead his first round because that relationship was so strong. So that's an example of like sort of grassroots working with someone to be able to be a, a, a meaningful partner in, in them building their company. That's a, I think that's a great example. I think another example, you look at a company like Ramp, um, and so Ramp is, you know, I mean, just an exceptional company, one of the fastest companies to to get to 100 million of revenue. Um, but in the earlier days, do you mind introducing Ramp? I I, I mentioned in in some of the emails back and forth that it's a story that I'm not actually that familiar with, and I don't know that I'm alone. Um, they re- recently raised, I think, at an eight billion dollar valuation. So hugely successful company company that we're, that we're talking about, and on like real revenues, I think one of the fastest companies to 100 million of ARR. What is Ramp? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a phenomenal story. I'll give credit to uh, one of the best outlines of the story is so Packy McCormick wrote a deep dive on Ramp and really lays out the story. Uh, I'll summarize it. It's, it's just such a fascinating story. So these guys, basically, uh, Ramp is in the expense management world, basically being able to help people you know, manage their, their business spending and things like that. One of the things that Ramp did the best at was just identifying the fact that, so if you look at like the early days of things like Concur and you know, Amex cards and stuff, it's all very painful. It's all very corporate. It's very difficult for, for younger companies to, to tackle. And then you have the introduction of companies like Brex and things like that, and they're sort of just really simplifying the process. Ramp took a really specific approach, which I love, which is this idea that it's just because it's a pretty simple idea, right? I mean, expense management and, and charge cards and stuff, like managing business spend, you know, it's not, it's not the, the sexiest thing in the world, but they took a very design-first approach and building a really high-quality product. They have beautiful cards, and the software is super intuitive, and it plugs into your systems to be able to pull your receipts right out of your email. And there's just all of these little things that make Ramp this really exceptional product. Um, and so they, they grew so rapidly, I think, in my mind, because, I mean, number one, they've, they've brought on just exceptional talent, people to help them tackle a lot of different industries and and to be able to understand exactly what customers want. And they've got a really exceptional sort of product and engineering team that sort of brings those requests to life. So as a company, Ramp has done exceptional in building that product. In terms of the contrary connectivity, so earlier on, sort of before their Series B, um, you know, I think five of the first 50 employees at Ramp were contrary community members. And it was through no effort of our own, right? We hadn't placed them there. They had just congregated there where it was somebody got a job there and then they knew other folks in the contract community. They brought them in. And so we got to know Ramp that way. And that's what I describe as like the pull motion is that when you have a really high bar for the people you bring into the community, they're really exceptional. When one of them does something, it's worth paying attention. When several of them do something, you can't ignore it. And so we, we sort of sat back and thought, I mean, this, is, this has got to be a stellar company. And so we got to know the folks at Ramp, and basically the pitch was, let us participate in the Series B and let us help you hire more. You know, obviously the people at Contrary are a great fit for Ramp. Let us hire more of those folks. And that relationship has been great. So we were able to invest in that company and, and have been you know, really helpful in, in helping from a hiring perspective. But the biggest focus for us, again, is that Ramp really is one of the, the most exciting talent vortexes that's getting built right now. Is that There's just exceptional people, right? When you look back and... There have been several over the years, you know, we started with the PayPal Mafia, but several different companies that 
have produced, you know, you look at Stripe and Airbnb and things like that. Ramp is certainly one of them where we're very excited to be, to be a part of that story. And not only because Ramp is an exceptional company and will be an exceptional investment for us, but also because there's, it's such a strong talent vortex that as people come out of Ramp and want to start their own companies, we're excited to be right there and to be able to invite them into the contrary community. And that's how it feeds the flywheel as well, right? So, so we, that's when we get really excited to, to work with companies like that. That's really cool. I mean, I, looking at your uh, presentation and, and how 10% of the first 50 employees at Ramp were out of your network, um, the awareness that you have going into that situation, um, it really is an unfair advantage. Um, yeah, this is really cool, man. <laughs> um, joining Contrary to lead uh, their breakout fund, could you talk about what it means to step into this role where I think principally you'll be investing in portfolio companies as they raise subsequent rounds of financing? So what does it mean to like enter an existing family of sorts and understand the institutional knowledge that's been built, the relationships, making as much as possible, like these stories that have been built over the last several years, your own. I would love to hear your mindset about coming in to lead a breakout fund uh, in an organization that's been so high performing. The way that I think about uh, our breakout fund in particular, and, and we, we think about it as a breakout fund because we're looking for those companies that are starting to break away that, that we can be helpful to in terms of the the talent and ecosystem that we've built and things like that. So to your point, a big focus is definitely on identifying and doubling down meaningfully with the existing portfolio companies that we have. Another bucket of that is the the sort of ramps of the world where we hadn't invested in ramp at the seed or uh, the series A, but we were able to invest at the series B and beyond. And so I'm also, I'm also driving that effort, right? Where it's net new investments, where even if we haven't invested before, we're looking for exceptional companies that are also building great talent vortexes. And the way that I think about my role of sort of stepping into an existing network and contrary is a contrary's existing network is really rich. There's so many people that have really deep uh, relationships with contrary. They feel so strongly about the, the brand and their relationships with Eric and the rest of the team that it's definitely been a, it's been a very eye-opening experience for me to step into that existing network. The ways that I think about it, that it the, and the reason that it's gone smoothly, and I think that this extends to other folks who are sort of running this, uh, you know, additional effort or, or later stage effort. Number one is it's really powerful to have a fresh set of eyes. Like the reality is that making a seed bet versus Series B versus you know IPO rounds, it's it's a very different process, and there's real value in having someone else come in and reality check how you feel about your own portfolio. There's a lot of venture funds that struggle with that. Like the the you know the partners that did the initial deal just want to keep investing because this is a known a known known, and 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 it feels comfortable. It feels exciting. But to have somebody come in and to say, well, let's really evaluate this on like is it, from a net new perspective, would we would I do this deal as a growth investor? That is pretty powerful. the The second piece of it is, um, in terms of portfolio construction. You know, you have to be very deliberate about the types of risk that you expose yourself to. And there's going to be a lot of firms, you know, you can already start to see it over the last few years. There's a lot of firms that 
that made what, what should have been generational investments in companies at the seed or the Series A stage, who then went on to, became, to become you know, five-plus billion-dollar companies. But because a lot of them you know, just got so caught up in the fervor that they sort of just you know, backed up the truck at these later stage rounds, then on a blended basis, they're going to have you know, maybe 1x returns over all that capital because a lot of it is in the sort of later stage rounds that are now going to be underwater. And it's because that there wasn't as much deliberate portfolio construction. It was mostly, hey, we constructed the portfolio. Now let's continue to put more, you know, more dollars at work. And in my mind, the best role that somebody like me can have is not only just a fresh set of eyes to evaluate these companies and, 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 and talk through the details, but also just to be a sort of watcher over the, the portfolio construction. And the way that that, you know, I've, I feel like I've, I've had a really great reception into the contrary family in large part because of what we talked about before. Like my role as a growth investor and, and what I credit TCV and KOTU and Index for teaching me is I've learned what good looks like. And I've gotten to meet a lot of people who personify exceptional execution. And so when I come in, you know, these people see the existing contrary team as great supporters from the early stages. And I come in and I say, listen, my perspective is to be able to help you think about the next phase of growth. And how do you think about sales? And how do you think about marketing? And how do you think about, you know, all these different aspects that come with growing a, a, a business and, and helping it to succeed? I represent that sort of data set that people get really excited about and that Contrary hadn't been able to offer really meaningfully before. And so when you are really clear about, hey, listen, here's my value proposition as a, as a quote unquote product, right? Like Kyle Harrison is the skew at, in, at Contrary, if you will. Um, and my skew is pretty well defined where it's like, hey, if you're a growing company, you're trying to think about, you know, raising a series B or whatever, uh, you're trying to think about what your metrics should look like. You're trying to hire leaders to come in and to really revolutionize your different organizations. I represent a pretty useful tool in, in you know, getting those things done. Is it challenging for you to step into existing relationships where being supportive really does, and to a certain extent, like <laughs> it's not all about money, but a lot of it is being supportive does mean showing up to future financing rounds. Um, is that, is that a difficult role for you to step in when, when the situation maybe warrants, not that this isn't a really high quality company, but your job in the breakout fund is to find the very best place for those dollars. And so when, when you can create, I don't know, I think that the, the, um, the situation of, it's not whether this is the best, it's not whether this is a good company that, we'd be happy to invest in. But if we can go and find higher quality opportunities with better risk reward, then that's really the objective of this fund. Does that create friction? The way that I think about it is, uh, and it's one of the reasons why Contrary has kept two separate funds for what we do. So within our core funds where we're making you know, and leading seed stage investments, we take a, a pretty uh, standard approach, right? Where we make the investment and we reserve a particular amount to continue to participate in pro rata and support the company and things like that. All of that is standalone and expected. In the, in the breakout fund, there's no expectation of, well, we have to do this or that. And that's one of the reasons why it's valuable rather than raising that fund and then having the same people that wrote the seed check then reevaluate the company for a, a whole new pool of capital that's much more difficult. 
having me come in, having that sort of, to some extent, arm's length, you know, existing relationship, it's easier for me to say, well, here's the mandate of this fund versus the mandate of that fund. And they can be different, right? Like we want to continue to support our companies at the earliest stages and then throughout their life with Prorata and supporting them to find new investors and things like that, just like any other seed fund would. My mandate is to identify the very best later stage companies. And the, the benefit for me, the sort of unfair advantage, is that the contrary team has done an exceptional job. That when I, when I started, I immediately had a pretty full plate of companies that are, that are just doing phenomenally well. And so my focus then was on, all right, well, how do I support those companies and how do I get meaningfully involved and, and add value and things like that so that it makes sense not just to do our pro rata, but at a later stage, even when they have a pretty competitive round where there's lots of people who would love to give them capital, that they're excited to have contrary play and even more meaningful role beyond just pro rata, but you know, even more for, for our uh, breakout fund. So that's been a big part of what I do because Contrary has done such a phenomenal job of identifying really high quality companies. And so now for me, like my role is defined by that, that simple mandate is I'm trying to identify the very best later stage companies. Yeah. Having that separation to create the situation where this is really just all upside where, where, um, at, a, at, at, at worst you're you have you step into a, a high quality pipeline that you pass on because you found other more compelling opportunities. Like I, I think I think that makes a bunch of sense. Would you be open to talking about a recent investment that you've made? Just the background on the relationship and how you looked at the data and and the market um, and the economics on on the business. I think I would really enjoy getting an opportunity to just hear like the thought process um, and the questions and the what you found after you lifted up uh, a few rocks. Yeah. Yeah. So one investment that we made, and this is a good example, you know, I mentioned before um, how there are sort of push and pull motions. And so ramp is an example of a, um, a, a push motion, right? Where, or sorry, a pull motion where the community pulled us into the conversation. Um, we made an investment recently in a company called PAVE, and what PAVE does is they act as, so when, when you're, you know, any any tech company that's trying to think about their pay bands, like how they're compensating uh, different roles at different stages of their career and how equity and cash factor into that and, and things. Today, the existing status quo of that is that there are a few companies out there like Radford and things that they, they offer up these spreadsheets. And typically the spreadsheets are, are collected by just mountains and mountains of survey data and then compiled by an army of consultants. And by the time you get access to the data, it's six to 12 months out of date already. Like it's just, it's the, when the market is moving fast and roles are competitive and shifting and changing, it's really difficult to have a pulse on, hey, what is, a, what is the competitive market for a particular role? And so what PAVE has done has gone out and built the... Uh, a sort of real-time engine with a give-to-get data model. So there's a bunch of different companies that are able to offer up their compensation bands in exchange for uh, free benchmarking data from PAVE. And so PAVE has built this incredible data set of a ton of different companies at tons of different stages and valuations and sizes. And, and you're able to, in real time, see, hey, what is the you know, 50th, 90th percentile uh, of a specific role at a specific city, all these different things. It's just something that didn't exist before. 
And then with their recent round that they announced, they actually also acquired Option Impact, which is another sort of legacy provider. So they're basically bringing in some of that process, some of that data, some of those, those existing customers. But now it is, it is effectively the largest data set of compensation data that exists. And so one of the things that from a contrary perspective, one of the reason, reasons why I was so compelled by, by PAVE and the opportunity that they're building is that there's a massive data advantage that they get to where once you become this sort of relied upon data source, it gives you that wedge to be able to say, hey, you know, you don't need to just one-off look up a benchmarking data point. We can also offer you a module around compensation planning, right? It's really complicated to think about within each organization, where are we going to add headcount? And if we add headcount, how are they going to be compensated? If we're paying folks, how do we think about salary increases and things like that? It's a complicated process. PAVE has a wedge into that to be able to offer that compensation planning. The same way they also have a wedge into offering a, a, an offer letter module, right? Where when you send out offer letters, you can have real-time data-enriched visualizations so that that candidate can under, appreciate and understand, hey, here's how competitive this offer actually is based on an underlying data set of thousands of companies. So there's all of these different wedges into the company that are pretty powerful. And as you think about the way that a company grows, as they continue to grow, they always need PAVE because they're constantly thinking about, hey, we need to stay competitive or else we're not going to be able to, to maintain our competitive wedge. And for a firm like Contrary, where we're so laser focused on talent, that sort of data advantage and, and you know, meaningful role that PAVE plays for these companies that, are, that, are, that do care about exceptional high quality talent really resonated with us. And so that was one of the reasons why we invested in PAVE. This, uh, this business sounds really cool. How do they make money? Is there, is there a composition of free and, and paid services here? There is, yeah. So the, the, it's basically the data module is give to get. So if I plug in, if, if any company and any company out there who wants to get access to this benchmarking data, if they go plug in their you know, Gusto or whatever their HRIS system, so that paid and is that is that is the is the HR side the data side is that structured enough such that you can ingest this information in like a a fairly I don't want to say homogenous but like is this a solved data problem so that you can receive it in a relatively clean format? It's definitely a, there's an advantage in primarily right now being focused on tech companies. Because tech companies, by and yes. large, are fairly that have normal. already adopted Gusto or Chime or 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 Workday or or whatever kind of of HR focused technology like that that has been structured in a, in a number of ways, but not an infinite uh, number of of ways, so that there you can build those integrations. That's right. And Pave has done a phenomenal job in being able to integrate with a pretty wide variety of systems. And so they make it fairly straightforward. And so if you plug in your HR system to be able to, you know, on an anonymous basis, uh, contribute your data points to the data set, then you get salary data. And if you connect your Carta, for example, uh, to be able to offer a similar on the equity side, to be able to say, hey, this role commands this level of equity, then you get equity data as well. And so in a free model, you can get access to both cash compensation and equity data at the same time. Um, and so that give to get model has been pretty powerful and it's, and it's free. And um, from there, PAVE is able to, again, what I said is the wedge that they get is by they're offering this data. Awesome. But PAVE is able to go to these folks who are using their data and say, 
hey, we can also plug right into your compensation planning. And that's a module that they charge for. Or you can have, uh, you know, digital offer letters that when you send candidates, it's basically you have an interface with drag and drop functionality where, hey, if I want to say, you know, we're, we're giving you X amount of equity in your offer, you can drag this line and see, hey, if we become a, you know, three, four billion dollar company, here's what your equity is worth. If we become a 10 billion dollar company, here's what your equity is worth. And it allows them to effectively appreciate the upside on the equity that they're getting and uh, as well as how competitive their their cash offer is and, and stuff like that. So they're able to monetize on those additional modules because of the existing data wedge. Yeah, this business has a lot of potential potential vectors for growth. And I, I love the dynamic whereby their, their customers, very likely, they won't ever outgrow needing PAVE. There's no scenario where you become so successful that you in-house this or that you, 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 you graduate into something else. Like as their customers are successful and go from seed stage technology company to publicly traded, you know, Dow Jones business that like this, the, the, the relationship that you can build over time, the product that you can offer, it, it, there's lots and lots of surface area to build relationship and, and monetization. Um, I really love also just the, the notion of like giving this away for free. Um, a Mark Andreessen quote that I just love is you commoditize one layer to create value at the next. I think this is a really interesting example of that. So when you when you step in to make an investment in PAVE, going back to the earlier question of like how do you think about what it means to be helpful? How do you how do you kind of assess the situation? I guess first of all, from like a do no harm perspective, like you don't want to express opinions where they're um you know, not not uh, going to be well received either by the team or by the impact that they have. How do you like sign up to to do something besides besides just writing that check? So the biggest thing, and again, at the later stages, I'd say that our involvement, you know, evolves over time uh, and in a company's life. So when we're leading rounds, the other stages, that's one thing, and there's a certain um, sort of playbook or expectation that you can have from us as an investor. And at the later stages in a company like this, the things that I do. Certainly a big part of the reason that companies, you know, that it resonates with us to be associated with us is because we're so talent centric, but it's also a highly qualified source of talent. And so these aren't, you know, there are other firms out there that also pitch themselves as a talent centric firm, but they're a little bit like, you know, headhunters for hire where you bring them on and they're going to send you, you know, a hundred plus resumes and you're just going to get a, an ocean of like, ah, good luck. You know, hopefully you can find somebody that's a good fit. For us, we're certainly not going to compete on volume. We're not trying to send hundreds and hundreds of resumes. What we're trying to focus on is, hey, we know these people really well, or we've gotten to know people, even if they're not core members of our community. We also run Startup Search, which is a newsletter that's got you know tens of thousands of subscribers. Uh, we, can, we can list jobs there. We've helped people hire from there. And then we also have big events. For example, we have a big event coming up in September uh, called Startup Fair, where it's a, it's a big virtual event where we have a hundred of the high, we usually get about a thousand applications. We filter that down to the hundred high quality, you know, highest quality folks. And we help them in multiple different ways and venues connect with different companies. And so we've had Figma and Rippling and Ramp and all sorts of, you know, great companies come and, and, and meet exceptional people there. So we have all these programs that we've built 
And the programs are pretty high quality and curated because we have this captive audience of a couple hundred folks that help us really hone our offering. And so people can, the, the people that take our money at the later stages, they appreciate that infrastructure that we have to be able to plug into really high quality talent. Beyond that, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I as an individual investor can do given the, you know, six plus years that I've spent at a few different firms and getting to know folks in terms of introductions and customer support and things like that. And so there's certainly an element of what I can offer as an investor, as well as what we as a firm can provide. But the, the deep sort of, you know, thing that resonates with most founders is just how high quality our um, sort of talent engine is. That's really exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you more about this business. I, I think that there is, um, if I, as I think about like, um, the areas, the low level, uh, maybe I'd say it this way. Um, one of the comments that people get really tired of me making is that companies are just people. And when you think about fostering those core assets, those people, there's a financial component, there's, there's engagement, there's career development, there's, there's all sorts of business logic and process that you can build into a company based on this data, uh, journey that, that you take a company on. Um, this is, I'm glad you highlighted it. This is this is a good one. Um, I'd like to transition a little bit to talking about the current environment. Um, I was listening to some earnings calls this morning. Uh, you had Google and Microsoft report yesterday, Shopify this morning, Shopify's letter uh, talking about how they have to let, lay off 10% of their workforce, um, showing this chart of, of the e-commerce growth during the pandemic and how it's trend reverted and and we're we're realizing that some of the accelerated growth rates that we've seen over the last 24 months um, they're not as durable as as a lot of us myself included thought you've written a lot on things that don't change and and kind of differentiating hype from substance could you talk about like what are you thinking about in an uncertain kind of money and macro and technology uh, market that just, it feels more disorienting now. And I don't even, I actually don't even think that that's an opinion. Like I think, I think when you have the likes of Stanley Druckenmiller speaking the way that he has just about how, how challenging this environment is, I would love to hear a thoughtful guy like you, what are you looking to find direction in this kind of environment? What are the kinds of data points and and or business products and services that you're trying to understand to discern like what is durable, what is what is going to sustain high growth rates at attractive unit economics? Um, earlier, I had a conversation with someone where he just started laughing. He said, I have no idea what to do. And I said, yeah, that's the point. Like intelligence is what you do when you don't know what you're doing. Would just love to hear you talk about this, this current environment at the risk of having a, a short shelf life part of this conversation. Yeah. I break it into two buckets that I think about a lot. Um, and I think that, um, the one thing that comes to mind first is I think that there is a lot of uh, a lot of I don't want to say bad assumptions, but just like I think I think like overblown assumptions maybe 
that need to be shaken out of the market. And as painful as it has been over the last couple of months, I still think a lot of those assumptions have not been has not been fully shaken out. So I think in one piece, there's sort of a mental uh, step change that needs to happen in terms of how we think about valuations and potential outcomes and things like that. Like I think that's bucket number one needs to happen. And then bucket number two is there. Are there any assumptions? Are there any assumptions? So where, where do those assumptions sit? Is that is that at a at a technology kind of market adoption? Maybe like we'll kick the dog on Web three, or or is it more? No, this is just about numbers and price and and what a a what intrinsic value really is. I think from my perspective, it's about numbers and price because when I think about the the technology and the traction, it's this idea that. You know, if you you talk about the twenty four hour news cycle, if you had a fifty year news cycle, right, where if you only put out a publication once every fifty years, you're not going to talk about the latest gossip. You're not going to go over some of these, you know, negatives or tragedies or setbacks or whatever. You're going to focus on this idea that in the long term, uh, history bends toward bends towards progress, right? So, in, from a technology perspective, I've never been more optimistic than I am now. I think when people look at these sort of um, deteriorating growth rates, they don't appreciate the fact that when you look at these companies that are generating billions of revenue, you know, even, even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were so few companies, especially in technology. I mean, only in 2011, did we pass the threshold of having over a hundred companies that had generated a billion dollars of revenue ever. And now we have 200 plus, right? Like the number of companies that have just proven that there is scale beyond what we previously imagined can, keeps me optimistic. And the fact that those companies can continue to compound. I mean, you look at the, the hyperscalers, right? The AWSs and, and uh, Azures of the world and just at tens of billions of dollars of revenue growing 30 plus percent or whatever, right? That, that kind of scale, I think people don't stop and reflect on the fact that that type of scale was unimaginable, you know, even in the dot-com or whatever, and so that keeps me optimistic about the technology and the general bent towards progress. The thing, the assumptions that I think need to get shaken out is the idea that like, yes, there are massive outcomes that can be possible, but by and large, when we think about um, expectations and the outcomes around the companies that are getting built and how that translates into evaluation, because evaluation is effectively saying, well, I can pay X because I believe that Y can happen and Y is exponentially greater than X, so that valuation equation has to get factored in. So that's where I think that a lot of the um, the sort of erroneous assumptions rest is in how people think about and do the math around the, the sort of prices you can pay today and the outcomes that that generates into the future. So that's one bucket. I, I can dig in a little bit too on that just in terms of like how those assumptions need to be shaken out. And then there's the like, okay, once we sort of like cleanse our palate of some of the negative um, you know, assumptions that we've had for the last few years, then what do I do about it? Like blocking and tackling as a founder, what do I do day to day and how do I react to this? And that, that's sort of a second bucket. And so like that first bucket, when I think about valuations, I wrote a piece back in February that really surprised me. Like I wrote a couple of pieces that were really popular and it was things like the unbundling of venture capital and the productization of venture capital. And I, I expected people to really like the thinking around venture because there's not as much about the business of venture out there. And I was, you know, I wasn't surprised, but I was pleased that people were excited about it. I wrote a piece that was almost like really mostly a, it was almost a journal entry because it was me thinking through my own, my own understanding of what evaluation is. 
So I wrote a piece called What's in Evaluation back in February. And every single month, I get a, a sort of resurgence of interest in that piece. It's one of my most popular pieces, and people get really excited about it. And in it, I basically write about, like, listen, like, you need to unpack the underlying assumptions that make up this valuation. And in my mind, what we need to achieve or work towards is a fundamental perspective on what evaluation is made up of. And for larger, more established companies, you know, you can talk about, yeah, it's the, you know, you think about the potential of the future cash flows of the business. But I don't think that the reality is going to change that these tech companies can can grow and grow and grow and potentially not generate significant amounts of cash, but achieve significant amounts of scale and then eventually achieve you know, significant amounts of cash. I think that that's possible. But when you think about what evaluation should be made up of, I mean, I'm always surprised when I lay out the math for a founder of how evaluation works in terms of an investor's perspective. Because for me, it's every day. It's the thing that I think about. But for them, it's not necessarily the same math that they're doing. So when you think about like, hey, if I invest at a $2 billion valuation for $20 million of revenue, which is definitely something that happened a number of times over the last few years, and then you think forward from that $2 billion valuation in, in the public markets, the average business is trading at six times revenue. Um, and so if you think that this business, you know, if, if things don't change dramatically, if multiples don't come back up dramatically, then in order for me to generate a 3x return at minimum, you need to get from $20 million of revenue today to about a billion dollars of revenue, right, for this to be kind of a $6 billion or so company. And so to get from $20 million to a billion of revenue, that's pretty difficult. And every time you need to raise more money to get there, I as an investor get diluted, which moves the goalpost beyond a billion dollars of revenue. And when you put that in perspective, like I talked about it as a point of optimism, it's like, yes, we have, you know, hundreds of companies that have now generated over a billion of revenue, which is, which is awesome. Like that's progress, but that's two or so hundred out of 400,000 startups that are out there, uh, just tech companies. And so you have less than a 1% chance of getting to a billion dollars of revenue. So all of that, that like statistical risk has to be factored into evaluation. And for the last few years, it just hasn't. Like I've worked with a lot of really intellectually honest crossover investors that I think are just exceptional thinkers and really deep, thoughtful people. And they've thought about this idea that many of the rounds that they avoided participating in is because they were basically saying, well, listen, this valuation is giving credit to like four or five derivatives of this company or, or uh, um, like, you know, future states of this company of like, they need to do this. And if they do that, then they need to do this. And if they do that, they need to do this. You're basically saying like, yep, they're going to do all of that perfectly successfully. And that's just not, that's not factoring in the appropriate risks. So there's a lot of stuff that needs to get shaken out of like, Evaluation is just not like, well, I'd really like to avoid as much dilution as possible and raise as much cash as possible. It's really a factor of like, what can your outcome be? And I think that that needs to be more flushed out and more thoughtful. So I, I really should write a follow-up piece to that because that, that, that piece of it, I think, is really critical. But then, you know, people start to get really pessimistic when I, when I talk about that kind of thing. But when it comes to, to your point about it's sort of like, hey, your friend, you know, I have no idea what to do. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that's when you prove. But really, I think about, I think it, I think it was a Napoleon quote or something, but it's this idea that the, the most successful people are the people who can, who can do the normal thing when everyone else is losing their mind. 
And right now everybody's losing their mind and they're sort of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and burning down the infrastructure and freaking out about what's going on. When at the end of the day, what you need to do is build a product that people need, not want, but need, and then continue to build upon that product to add to the other things that they need. Like there's a fundamental belief in the business and when I, and there's a lot of like public market sentiment that I think is is just too negative. Like, yes, did Shopify, you know, did did Toby get it wrong, right? Did he think that this was the new normal where we've got this huge e-commerce penetration and it's great and we sort of reverted to the mean? Is that true? Yes. Is the trend still forward? Yes. And so is Shopify still a good business for the next 10, 20, 30 years? Absolutely. And and all of these technology trends that we're investing behind I think that those continue in the long run to be phenomenal trends and and I want to back companies that are building behind them. Even if the fundamentals right now are a little screwy, we need to figure that out. But in the long run, I continue to be super optimistic about the people who can do the normal things that they need to do while everyone else is losing their minds. A few months ago, I got an opportunity to, to do a road trip with a couple of guys and one was Jeremy Giffen from this fund that I really like called Tiny Capital and he was talking about how he didn't really think that we learn from our mistakes as people like it. And, 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 and I depressed as that made me, I kind of agree with him because I, I tend to feel like I, I'm, I'm more a, a dog chasing, chasing its tail than, um, this like, you know, linear arrow of progress, uh, 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 champion. How do you think about like at a personal and professional level? And I think that those, you I mean you're the same person, so like your 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 thoughts are are informed, you know, one one to the next. How do you think about doing the what like what is what is the normal thing? What is the what is the rightly considered way to be constructing your outlook so that maybe we're not talking about learning from our mistakes, but something of like a I don't know, just focus on the inputs and those outputs will take care of themselves. I'm actually writing. There's an article I'm working on with a few other folks. Um, it's basically unpacking the idea of a postmortem, like what is in a postmortem and how do you do it successfully? And, um, and one of the, I'll give you kind of a sneak peek. Um, I don't think it'll come out for a few weeks, but one of the, <clears throat> one of the sections that I talk a lot about is this concept that I have of the spirit of humility. And I think that there is this, um, and it's really, it's an epidemic of people not willing to ask themselves, what am I wrong about? Uh, it's true in politics, religion, business, everything. It's this idea that that people are so, it's either an ego thing where they're convinced that if they acknowledge that they're wrong about something, that, that it sort of demonstrates some weakness and they need to have you know, as much political capital as possible and so they avoid acknowledging their own weakness. But it's the, you know, the kinds of people who can, it, it's the, the John Maynard Keynes quote, right? When he says that when the facts change, I change my mind and that's okay. I, it's okay to change my mind. I think that what people don't do enough of is stopping and questioning the underlying assumptions. So I think that if I were to, to paint a, a framework for the, the sort of best way to build a company, um, the root parts are first, it's an army of assumptions. You're making all these assumptions about what people want and how they want it and how much they're willing to pay for it and what it needs to be able to do and all these, all these assumptions. And those assumptions eventually need to, you know, in the... Um, <clears throat> the words of Mike Tyson, they need to get punched in the face, right? Like they need to be met with reality. You meet those assumptions with reality. And then hopefully that translates into some kind of economic engine where you execute on the assumption, you do the thing, they do pay the thing that you thought they would pay. 
you add the features that they wanted, they pay more. Like all the, the economic engine gets built up on those assumptions getting tested. But I think it's the people who do not have a cultural focus on learning and on humility and on being willing to acknowledge and I think it's I think it's good it's healthy for you know for somebody like Toby at Shopify to say hey I got this wrong and I'm sorry like but that's something that like people are going to crap on him for years until eventually Shopify comes out whether it's like they you know you know over years and years and years they reach their all-time high again or, or or they execute on something that's just exceptional or whatever it is eventually they're going to stop crapping on him but you have to be like we just don't have a culture generally where that spirit of humility is appreciated enough and we need more of it. Like I saw a tweet a while ago that I really loved that said um, we should etch the words I could be wrong over every classroom, every political assembly hall, every laboratory. Everyone should be willing to like accept humble uncertainty and try and, and acknowledge like, okay, what could I be wrong about rather than just like dogmatically charging into the story that they've told themselves. You set me up really well for my closing question. Um, my favorite song lyric is a uh, Magnolia electric song and it's called farewell transmission. And the line is the real truth about it is no one gets it right. The real truth about it is we're all supposed to try. I think for me, like that has given, it's given me so much like peace and solace and also energy to like fucking go out and try like that. That's where your scorecard sits. It's in the, it's in the effort. Like let your, let your career, let your life be dictated by the actions that you take rather than the opinions that you hold and I, I love seeing the public humility that um, Toby has, has shown. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Shopify for, for what it does to create economic opportunity. Like these are stories of, of hope and, and progress and thinking about that 50 year journey um, and, and what you would what you would write in a, in a once every 50 year publication, I think is a, is a pretty helpful way to think about investing. It's a helpful way to think about uh, how you treat people and, and how you construct your personal life. So this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it, Kyle. So my last question is, could you tell me about a song and what it means to you? Yeah, I think it actually, I mean, just by coincidence, I think it fits pretty thematically too. It's just a song that I love, but, um, so it's a song called farther along by Josh Gurels. Um, and I loved this song. So I, I served a mission for my church. I was the guy with the the white shirt and black name tag knocking on doors, you know, and it was really tough uh, when I was out trying to talk about something that gave me a lot of hope, but I had a lot of people, you know, tell me to go to hell, slam the, do the door in my face. Like it was a tough time. And there was a line in that song that both helped me then and keeps me optimistic. Now the line is, uh, so cheer up my brothers live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. And that's just the optimism that I want to have in my life. Like it's just not, uh, Packy McCormick also wrote another really great piece about optimism, but this idea that like optimism is better than pessimism. It is healthier. It is more productive. It is, uh, you know, more game changing that like, certainly it's important to be healthy and, and to be uh, skeptical and, and think about things analytically. But at the end of the day, I want to try and be as optimistic as possible because I'm trying to build the world that I want to exist. I love that. I think I think reverse engineering to how do I maintain my most persistent, optimistic 
optimistic, active self? Like, what are the decisions that I have to make so that that can be my output? Like that for me, that, you know, turning the, 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 um, uh, the machine upside down and then thinking about how you build to that ends like that. It's tough, man. It's really difficult to, to, (laughs) to feel like you're making progress, um, in a, in a, in a, in a world that has such tight feedback loops and also where there is so much, so much energy and, 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 um, there are so many opportunities to apply yourself, finding that you're, you're, um, sustaining that optimism is, um, I think that's like the real, that's going to be the real test of, of time. That's going to be what I think, um, differentiates the, the like the, the long-term winners, um, in a whole host of, of facets. So, um, yeah, Kyle, uh, I'm really enjoying getting to know you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I absolutely mean my earlier comment that I, I don't know how I could get involved in your community curation. I mean, I, I think that for me, um, I'm thinking about like, what's the thing that I have that I can give every single day. I think it's energy, optimism, you know, curiosity and, um, and so if there are ways that I can, can bring that to, um, to any part of your community, um, the people that are in it, uh, I think that there are going to be lots of great companies built. I think there are going to be lots of great investments to be had and some really good memories made. And so I'd, I'd like to sign up for that if I could. We would love that. There's always, uh, you know, when, we're, when you're as people-centric as we are, there's always a place for thoughtful people who want to be able to, to help lift other people up and things like that. So absolutely, we'll find a way to, to, to work together. That's cool, man. Congratulations on everything. Uh, congrats on the move to Salt Lake. I'm so happy that you guys have the family support. Uh, Contrary is a firm that I um, I think is, uh, is going to be standing pretty tall in the future. So um, well done finding your way there and, and leading this breakout effort. Um, I'm, I'm excited to, to borrow a, a line from one of my favorite founders, Jeff Lawson. I can't wait to see what you build. So thanks so much for this time, man. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. This is super fun. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show is edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. If you'd like to receive more Unlimited Partners content, then please sign up for our private podcast feed. You can do that by visiting our website, up-pod.com. 